Thanks for tuning in to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Lee Benson of the Deseret News recently wrote a nice profile of Jim Steenberg, author of the book Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth. And with fresh powder on the ground, we thought this a great time to revisit our conversation from November of 2014. Hope you stay tuned. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Jim Steenberg, professor of atmospheric sciences at University of Utah, says that for many who come to our state, powder is more than snow. It's a way of life. Utah's long claimed to have the greatest snow on earth. The state itself even trademarked the phrase, of course. In his new book, Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth, out from Utah State University Press, Steenberg investigates Wasatch weather, exposing myths. He says, for example, the famous lake effect is the most misunderstood Wasatch weather phenomenon. He reveals how and why Utah's powder lives up to its reputation. One section of the book is titled Mother Nature's Five-Step Plan for a Snowstorm. And Steenberg also investigates uh, ski and snowboard regions beyond Utah. He looks at Utah's closest competitor for greatest snow on earth title, uh, Hokkaido Island in Japan, and explores the mountain weather, avalanches, snow safety, historical accounts of weather events, weather forecasting. For example, uh, he explains in the book how you can do your own weather forecasting, for people who do that. Jim Steenberg is a professor of atmospheric science at the University of Utah, as I said. He's an avid backcountry resort skier, creator of the blog Wasatch Weather Weenies. And he's an authority on mountain weather and snowstorms. He led the numerical weather prediction team for the 2002 uh, Winter Olympic Games. And uh, Jim Steenberg, pleasure to welcome you into uh, Access Utah. Thanks for having me, Tom. I'm looking right now at Wasatch Weather Weenies. Uh, you're you're uh, taking a look at the cold surge. It is cold. Let me start there uh, with the weather rip from the headlines. How long is this going to last? Well, uh, winter's here. <laughs> And uh, it took a while to get here, but it's certainly, I think that the worst of the cold will probably be the next the next day or two, and then we'll warm up some, but then it looks like we're going to be getting some mountain snow uh, uh, starting on Thursday, so I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, that'd, that'd be great. That'd be great. Uh, by the way, um, I don't know what models are showing. Uh, we can predict out the you know entire winter. Is this going to be a wet winter, dry winter? What do you think? Yeah, my usual answer to that is your guess is as good as mine. Okay. In northern Utah, there's really no good indicators for giving us an idea of what the, the snow year is going to be like. So uh, the other response I usually tell people is a bad year here is better than a good year in Colorado. So just keep your skis waxed, and hopefully we'll get some good powder skiing. All right. Uh, let me get into your biography a little bit. It seems like people who really love powder gravitate to Utah in the West if they can. You were able to. You, you grew up, I think, in New York? I grew up in upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains. That's where I started skiing and, and really where I you know, kind of got excited about the weather and winter storms. And uh, through your schooling, were at, uh, once you got your Ph.D., I guess you were, you were offered a job to your great joy at the uh, University of Utah. Yeah, I was really lucky. You know, my real love is, is mountain weather and in particular snowstorms. So to come to, to the University of Utah and basically have this tremendous paradise for powder skiing and studying winter storms right at my doorstep was really amazing. And to get the chance to, uh, to to head that team for the for the Olympics. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. You know, weather prediction is really important for the Olympics. I mean, everything that happens outdoors, whether it's driving, you know, getting all these people to the venues and back, or whether it's ski jumping or whether it's the downhill or anything else, it's really weather sensitive. So weather is really critical to a weather forecasting, good weather forecasting really successful for a really important for a successful winter games yeah i guess the organizers are you know praying hard i remember uh with salt lake city olympics uh 
they were uh, they were trucking in snow from other areas. Uh, Sochi, uh, I guess that's a kind of a lower latitude, but they the snow making machines seem to be going nonstop. Yeah, you know, well, I think for Salt Lake we were lucky. We had great weather. Actually, we, the best case scenario for the Olympics is it snows a lot before the games start, and then basically it doesn't snow anymore. And uh, we did have some storms during the Olympics, but we did really well. Vancouver was a, a nightmare, I think. They really had difficult weather there. It was extremely warm. And Sochi, yeah, Sochi is, you know, is, is quite a bit to the south. It's a very mild climate there. But, um, you know, they were making snow there the year before and burying it under thermal blankets to make sure they were going to be covered. And I think in the end they had plenty of snow, although they struggled both there in Vancouver for the ski events you know, the temperatures are really mild, and that's not really good for ski racing. That's one of the problems, putting it in those warm climate areas. That's amazing, the, the technology. So they, they uh, preserve snow from the year before? Yeah, they were doing that, I think, in some areas. You know, they basically blow out uh, these snow guns. They make snow until it's very, very deep, and then they put insulated blankets over it. And you're going to lose some of it, but the idea is you'll have some carryover till the next year. This is uh, later in your book, but I'd like to bring it up here and then, and then get back to powder. And uh, you investigate, uh, you know, the, the, the slogan, greatest snow on earth. Uh, but uh, the effects of global warming, uh, in the book you say global warming's effects in Utah, uh, more rain, less snow, of course. Yep. Uh, that's, and that's going to have direct impact on, on the ski resorts, uh, skiing. Yeah, you know, the first thing that you see with global warming is the increase in temperatures, which is well documented now. I mean, we still get a cold winter now and then, but on average, things are warmer now than they were 50 years ago. And the second thing that happens is not necessarily that you see less snowfall, but because there's so much, um, some years, we actually maybe have gotten a little bit wetter over the last couple of decades, but the percentage of precipitation during the wintertime that falls as snow, at least in the lower elevations, has declined somewhat. Upper elevations are pretty good. It's so cold up there, they're still getting almost all the precipitation that falls in the winter falls as snow. But in the lower elevations, when you're starting getting down below about 7,000 or 6,000 feet, we're seeing a greater fraction of wintertime precipitation falling as rain instead of snow. Uh, you talk a little bit in the book about um, snow making. It's, it's an incredible technology. I don't know whether the ski industry are gonna ha- is going to have to depend more and more on this. Well, they already are, even even without climate change. The expectation is, you know, especially if you go to the eastern United States where I grew up, you know, basically there wouldn't be a ski industry there probably without snowmaking. Uh, you know, back in the day, in the 50s and the 60s, for them to be have these short operating periods when there was snow was no big deal. But the ski industry is a big, in, you know, it's big money now, and people expect to have a season. And so they, they snowmaking is absolutely vital for their season. Here in Utah, it's be, you know, it's important for the shoulder season. Um you know, Thanksgiving's a big weekend. The resorts like to be open. They need to ensure they have really good coverage for Christmas week. And so even here where we have great snowfall, it's pretty much great abundance of snowfall, especially in the Cottonwoods, snowmaking is a vital part of the industry. Uh, so this uses a lot of water, I believe, right? Yeah, it certainly uses water and it uses plenty of electricity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, maybe not good uh, for, for the climate. Uh, you, uh, how, how is that to snow on, or to ski on, rather? You, I think you say in the book you, uh, you don't like skiing on, on <laughs> Yeah, the book man-made. is an ode to powder skiing. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I kind of, I always like um, Grant Targhee's slogan, uh, but it's a snow from heaven, not from hoses. You know, there's, there's nothing like natural snow. It skis, you know, if you're a ski racer, they actually like hard man-made snow. But, I mean, for great skiing, for me, it's, you know, it's about skiing powder. And man-made snow is, is just a base. It's, it's not even snow. It's really frozen small cloud droplets, small droplets. 
Uh, and so it has a very low water content. It's very dense. It's really great for high traffic areas, making sure there's going to be coverage, but it doesn't provide as good of a ski experience as the real thing. What is it about powder? I, I, I've heard many skiers <laughs> rhapsodize uh, about powder. What, what is it about powder? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's one of those things where you just know you love it. Um, it's uh, just getting the flotation, you know, the the freedom that you feel in powder is just, you know, something that you can't, I don't have, there's no other experience I know that, that kind of gives you that feeling, the flotation, the ability to kind of get get snow flying in your face and your body, getting face shots, we call it. It's uh, it's a really great experience. And, you know, Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth for me is, it's not just about skiing, it's really about deep powder skiing. That's what what it's all about. D- deep powder skiing. Yeah. Uh, you, you have a, a, a page in the book, there are three pictures. In the middle is the Goldilocks effect. I, I guess you're talking about just right, right? Yeah. On the left of that, there it's too much. You've you've got a a guy there. He's he's kind of bogging down. Yeah, my friends have accused me of being a powder snob, and and a lot of people in Utah are powder snobs here because we get so many of these so-called Goldilocks storms. But you know, if you get six inches of snow at a ski resort, that's not deep powder skiing. That's you know ankle deep powder. You're not you're not getting true flotation. Usually the skis settle through and they're riding on the underlying surface. Deep powder skiing is really meaning that you're not riding on that underlying surface. You're getting true flotation as you're skiing through the snow, and it's a great feeling. And uh, that's the Goldilocks storms, you know, storms that are that are putting down 12 to 20 inches of snow where you can start to get that good flotation. But you also don't want too much of a good thing. I mean, these behemoth storms like they get in the Sierras and other places, you know, where you get 40, 50, 60 inches of snow, Everybody loves to talk about how they experience those, but that that's too much snow in most cases. The resorts can't open the steep terrain, and uh, really what you want are lots of these Goldilocks storms. And then too little, uh, you're, you're basically, as you say, just uh, just skiing on the hard pack. With yeah, a, we with call a it dust bit. on crust, you know, yeah. and, and uh, you know, you get six inches of snow if it hasn't snowed in a week or so. You know, you're just going to settle through that snow and be riding on the underlying surface. That's not that's not as fun, not as exciting as skiing in deep powder. We'll go back to this idea of powder and 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 how powder is made and and uh, the, the right conditions. Um, back to the, the global warming. Um, in the book, you say Utah's warming faster than the global average. Yeah, we're warming the 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 rate of temperature increase in Utah and other parts of interiors of continents like interior Asia, interior North America. The rate of temperature uh, climb is faster, uh, and it's because the global average is strongly impacted by temperatures over the oceans, and the oceans take longer to respond to the warming. But uh, yeah, the temperatures here are going up faster than the global average. So, one of the effects you say that there'll be changes to storms and to storm tracks. Yeah, so this is something we're working on now. Uh, I mean, basically, as we move forward in time, the storm tracks are expected to retreat uh, northward to some degree. And, uh, you know, Utah is in kind of a difficult area to try to figure out exactly how that's going to affect our weather during the course of the next, you know, 100 years or so. I would say that probably some of the models retreat the storm track uh, pretty rapidly northward, and we end up in a somewhat drier wintertime climate. Some of them bring it um, only a little bit farther northward, and because we have more water in the atmosphere under a warming climate, we actually have an increase in wintertime precipitation. So that's a really hard question to get after. And uh, I talk about that a little bit in the book. The other thing that's uh, going to impact us all, not only skiers, but, uh, you know, everybody, is, is snowpack. We, we depend, at least right now, we depend on snowpack for, for the water through the, through the year. 
Yeah, I think we can say with pretty high confidence as we move through the 21st century that we're going to see a decline in low elevation snowpack. Um, and we're also going to see a, a pretty substantial decline in low elevation snowfall. The upper elevations, when you start getting above eight, 9,000 feet, how things are going to evolve there, how quickly things are going, to, are going to change is going to really depend on how fast the climate system warms. I mean, the one advantage you have when you're getting up at nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet is during the wintertime, it's very cold. It's generally below, well below freezing most of the time. So most of the storms, even with a couple degrees of warming, are still going to be generating snow at those altitudes. On the other hand, we still might see some snowpack loss because we start to see earlier snowpack melt and those sorts of things. So, so this is an interesting problem. It's a big challenge for a scientist to try to figure out how quickly the, that the climate's going to change and how those upper elevations are going to be impacted. Do, do, we, uh, do we see any trends? Do we have any idea of, uh, first of all, on how fast? Is this, is this going to have very serious effects in the next, what, 10, 50 years? Well, that's a, that's a hard question. I mean, if you look at the, the climate projections and our understanding of the sensitivity of climate, you know, you have climate projections that range from not super rapid, maybe even manageable climate change to much more rapid climate change. A lot depends on, we call it these feedbacks in the climate system and how they, how they affect the, the climate system of the earth. And uh, if we're on the low end of those projections, then things will be manageable. But if we're on the high end of those projections, it's going to be a very dramatic temperature or very dramatic climate change for the state of Utah. I was interested to learn in, in the book, you, you talk about greenhouse gases, uh, the, the biggest culprit. But you, you talk about a dirty little secret, as you call it. Yeah, the dirty little secret is dust on snow. And uh, we have a lot of dust here in Utah, and it gets into the snowpack during these episodic uh, dust storm events. And snow is white, and it reflects a lot of sunlight back to space. But when you put dust on it, the dust absorbs a lot of that sunlight. And so it, it's basically accelerating the snowmelt in the spring to have that dust in the snowpack. And that's something that's probably been in the snowpack on and off, depending on the given year, really for the last 100 or 150 years. But as we start to see um, global warming occur and we start thinking about ways to maybe extend the snowmelt, uh, the snowpack season, then trying to find ways to reduce the amount of dust in the air might be a way to help mitigate climate change. Hmm. We are uh, going to take a break here uh, briefly. Uh, we're talking with Jim Steenberg. Uh, he is Professor of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Utah. He's an avid backcountry and resort skier, creator of the blog Wasatch Weather Weenies. Uh, he's an authority on mountain weather and snowstorms. He led the numerical weather prediction team for the 2002 Winter Olympic Games. His research on snow, winter storms, forecasting has been featured by the Weather Channel, New York Times, USA Today, Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, he is at the University of Utah. He's a professor of atmospheric sciences. And he has a new book out. It's called Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth, Weather, Climate Change, and Finding Deep Powder in Utah's Wasatch Mountains and Around the World. It's out uh, from Utah State University Press. Uh, by the way, Professor Steenberg does uh, talk about uh, powder, great snow beyond uh, Utah. And uh, we'll talk about uh, the closest competitor for greatest snow on Earth uh, title, Hokkaido Island in Japan. There's some other areas in Japan as well. There's a, an incredible picture. Talk about this when you come back from the break. Uh, somewhere in Japan, and you've got some people dwarfed by, they're in this canyon of snow. Uh, must be an incredible amount of snow uh, falls in those areas. We'll talk about avalanche safety as well, and we'll get into this uh, the central question. Does Utah have the greatest snow on earth, and what does make for, for great powder? More following the break. Did you know that less than one-third of Americans hold at least a bachelor's degree? But at least 30% of adults in 16 states, mostly on the coasts, have earned a bachelor's degree or higher? 
the three interior states among those 16 are Illinois, Minnesota, and Utah. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. We're going to do a little test here, so pay attention, all right? Who is this? I'm not good enough just to flip in and out of, you know, my Brit accent to my American accent. Damian Lewis, he's a Brit with a new show, one of the stars of Billions. Next time on Marketplace, it's from 8 p.m. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Jim Steenberg. He's professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of Utah. And he has a new book out. It's called The Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth. It's out from Utah State University Press. We're talking about snow, of course, great powder. Steenberg says that for many who come to our state, powder is more than snow. It's a way of life, and uh, don't we know it? And, of course, Utah has trademarked the phrase, greatest snow on earth. We'll get into that story. Uh, as well, talk about some other great uh, powder areas around the world, including uh, in Japan. We'd love to have your experiences, your question, your comment. You can join us uh, on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. We're on Facebook, and you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. Jim Steenberg, here's the first paragraph in your introduction. You say, Is it true? Does Utah really have the greatest snow on Earth? What about claims that Utah's snow is lighter and drier than elsewhere, that magic snowflakes are created because West Desert's dry out snow, or that moisture from the Great Salt Lake fuels storms? What What did you determine? Is Is it true? Utah, yeah. greatest snow on Earth? Yeah, well, that's ultimately in the eye of the beholder. And I, but I usually tell people, at least for deep powder skiing, this is one of the best places in the world, and it certainly has a good claim to the greatest snow on Earth when you're looking at it from that standpoint. What's not true is that the, the snow here is not unusually dry. That's what I, one of the things we talk about in the book is, is the average water content of snow in the Wasatch is, is actually higher than it is in Colorado. It's higher than it is in, in Montana and Wyoming. And it's higher than it is in the lake effect snow belts in the eastern United States. So the idea that Utah snow is unusually dry is a myth. What makes our snow so special is that, number one, we get a lot of it. And a lot of places that get drier snow don't get a lot of snow. So if you go to parts of Colorado, you know, even though they've got this really famous ski industry, it doesn't snow that much there. A lot of the resorts there get 200 to 300 inches of snow a year, where we're talking about, you know, 500 inches a year in the cottonwoods here. And then also our, our climatology is biased to give us these snowfalls that are really ideal for deep powder skiing, where they start out, the storms start out a little warmer, and the snow they produce initially is a little bit higher, water, has higher water content, and then they get drier over time. And that's really what you want for the best ski flotation. So we really have that dialed in in terms of getting these what we call right-side-up snowfalls that give us great powder skiing. Uh, right-side-up snowfall. Yeah, that means that the storm, the snow starts out with higher water contents, higher density, and then over time it gets drier. Oh, I and see. So that yeah. gives you a, this profile of snow water content density that's ideal for having skis float. If you have the opposite, where it starts out really dry snow and then you get heavier snow on top, and we sometimes see storms like that here, but they're not the norm, then the skis tend to submerge and they tend to, you just don't get the same flotation. It's more difficult skiing. Hmm. Well, you you've blown my mind. We are, we 
I always thought we had that. It was because the powder's great because we had the drier snow. Yeah, most people think that, but the yeah. snow here is not unusually dry. It's really how the snow falls, the way it's stacked in a storm, is what makes the skiing here so good. Uh, what about a place like Hokkaido? That do they have dry, dry snow? They do, you know, and and I always tell people, you know, Japan has the most amazing snow climate in the world from a science perspective. It's really, for me anyway, it's an incredible snow climate. And um, even down further south on Honshu Island, you know, just to the the, uh, west of Tokyo, once you get into the Japanese Alps, it snows an incredible amount there. But Hokkaido has the advantage of being farther north, and so they generally see a drier snow. Um, And they get tons of it. I mean, if you want to have the closest thing to guaranteed powder skiing anywhere in the world, you want to go to Hokkaido Island in January because they average something like, you know, just maybe at about 500 feet above sea level, they average like 150 inches of snow that during that month. And and that's a big number. You know, Alta is more like 80 or 90 in January. Mm. So January in Hokkaido, that's the surest bet for powder skiing. So if they were so inclined, those resorts in Hokkaido, would they be justified in trying to take away that title, Greatest Snow on Earth? Well, I don't want to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, you know, there's some disadvantages there, too. All the snow is dry there, so it doesn't stack quite as well as it does here. So so I'll, I'll let the marketers have, have in on that one. But mm-hmm. they certainly have a, a, some of the best powder skiing in the world there. Yeah, and the lawyers, of course. Um, there's this picture that I made reference to before the break. Uh, this is on page 59 of the book. Uh, just incredible. The Mount Tatayama Snow Corridor. Yep. Uh, and the, <laughs> you have to see it to believe it. These people are dwarfed. This is like a, I don't know, a, a five or six story building. Uh, this road is cut through this these walls of snow. Yeah, that area in the Japanese Alps sees some of the deepest seasonal snowpacks in the world. You know, if you think about where it snows the most in a given season, you know, probably parts of Alaska and western Canada might have a claim on it, but they don't try to put roads through a lot of those areas. Uh, and the deepest seasonal snowpack actually ever observed in the world was in that part of the Japanese Alps. Um, so they get they just get pounded there. It, it's it what happens in the winter time in Japan is cold air comes off of Asia, you know, during the winter time, and it moves over the warm sea of Japan, and they're just basically inundated in what's essentially lake effect snowfall for for much of the winter, and they just see huge amounts of snow. By the way, you you, uh, you uttered the phrase uh, lake effect, and you say, I was interested in this part of the book, you say the lake effect, we're talking about Great Salt Lake effect here in Utah, is the most misunderstood Wasatch weather phenomenon. Yeah, I think that's, I think one of the things that people think is that the lake effect produces huge amounts of snow in Utah, and that's not really true. Uh, I mean, if we if the lake was gone tomorrow, Alta would probably still average something like 450 inches of snow a year maybe even a little more than that. So we do occasionally get big lake effect events that can put down a foot or two of snow. That's not like that doesn't happen, but they don't happen all the time. And a lot of the times when it's snowing and we're in northwesterly flow and the flow is coming down the Great Salt Lake, we're just getting non-lake effect snow. Just because the air is going over the lake doesn't mean it's lake effect snow. So a lot of people think we get all this lake effect snow, and we do get some, but it's not as much as you might think. Mm. What, what are some other myths that you, that you burst uh, can burst for us. Ooh, that's a tough one. We've already got the obvious ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think the other one of the other myths is is 
that you hear sometimes is about the deserts drying out air masses producing our our dry snow and that, and that's there's nothing really to support that scientifically either um so that, that that's one of the other you know my favorite they love to talk about the desert or the salt crystals and everything else and it's and and those are those are minor if, if they have any effect at all they don't really they don't really impact our snow at all if you just joined us we're talking about uh, snow uh, Jim Steenberg uh, has a passion for snow, skiing on it, studying it. Uh, luckily, he's able to make his life uh, with with snow. He was uh, hired, uh, grew up in upstate New York, but was hired on as a young professor at uh, University of Utah, has been able to make his career here. Uh, he's professor of atmospheric sciences at University of Utah's new book, very interesting book, it's called The Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth. It's out from Utah State University Press, and we're talking all about snow on the program today. You can join us on Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio, and you can join us by email to upraccess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, just to recap, Jim Steenberg, you, you told us we're likely to see some snow coming up in the next few days. Yeah, it looks like a pretty good stretch where we're going to see some snow, especially for you folks up in the Logan area, the mountains up there. Probably starting, you know, tomorrow. We even have a little bit of snow in the central Wasatch right now, but really starting in earnest tomorrow and then going into Saturday. So it doesn't necessarily look like it's going to be a huge event, but it certainly looks like it'll probably give us a, a good, you know, a decent amount of snow. I should mention uh, Jim Steenberg is the creator of Wasatch Weather Weenies. It's uh, a popular blog. Uh, and you can find that at wasatchweatherweenies.blogspot.com. Uh, Jim Steenberg, I'd like to get into uh, some of the history here. Uh, you, you say the first meteorologist to ponder the questions we've been talking about, what makes Utah's powder special, was S.D. Green in the 1930s. Tell me about him. Yeah, well, Green was a meteorologist with what what was the Weather Bureau, the U.S. Weather Bureau, which is now the National Weather Service. But he was also an avid backcountry skier. And you know, in the 30s, backcountry skiing in the Wasatch, uh, at least down here in the central Wasatch, involved taking a train to Park City, skiing over to Brighton, maybe overnighting in Brighton, and then and then coming out. And, uh, you know, Green was the one to really recognize just how, how uh, incredible the microclimate of the upper cottonwoods is. You know, when we, when we think about Utah snow, there's a lot of great snow in Utah, but the upper co- cottonwoods are really the hot spot. That's the snowiest area. It gets the deepest snowpack, and it probably has the best powder skiing in the Wasatch. So Green recognized that, and he, he said eventually the world will, will learn that the, the upper cottonwoods has the, uh, the best snow in the Wasatch. Uh, tell me about that microclimate. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's kind of, I think, a, a special result of the way the terrain is shaped there and just how high it is. Um, you know, the highest parts of the Wasatch range are the central Wasatch and the upper cottonwoods, the, the terrain that surrounds those two canyons then down by Mount Timpanogos and down by Mount Nebo further to the south. But Timpanogos and Nebo are these very, um, we call them two-dimensional mountains. They run basically, you know, not quite north-south, but they're very, very much north-south oriented. But in the central Wasatch, the central Wasatch don't only run north-south, but there's ridges that also extend from east to to west. And the impact of the shape of the terrain there is such that the central Wasatch can get snow from just about any flow direction rather than, say, just from the southwest, like down by Mount Timpanogos. And that's one of the reasons why the snowfall is so great there. And uh, you've got to have slopes of the right uh, right degrees as well, right? 
to make well mother nature yeah i mean having a steep slope is good because then you get the strongest uh what we call a vertical motion or rising motion so that's good as well but if you want deep potter skiing too you want steep slopes so (laughs) that's the other nice thing in the central wasatch actually most of the wasatch range is it's very steep uh, mountain range and so you get great snow but you also have steep terrain yeah that's what i was thinking about the the skiing but i guess it has some effect on on actually producing snow so yes yeah uh so uh in the 30s lifts were installed and uh, th- this area, I guess the word got out. Uh, skiers uh, heard, oh, there's some great powder out in Utah. Yeah, I mean, really deep powder skiing, the technique for doing it developed at Alta. And uh, it didn't happen in the Alps. It happened here. It happened here because the snow here is so fantastic. And people were really going out and trying to ski uh, deep powder. And they were trying to do it in steep terrain. So that's, you know, really Alta is the birthplace of deep powder skiing in, in the world. And so people like uh, Alf Engen and and uh, and folks whose names are famous now they 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 came and developed this. That's right. These guys were the pioneers. You know, they were the they were the ones that really uh, put deep powder skiing on the map for Utah. And so these techniques were taken up by I guess the the professionals. Yeah, you know, it it was interesting to go back and do a little. Like, this book is is a science book to some degree, but it's also got history in it and that sort of thing. It's really interesting to go back and read about how deep powder ski. Uh, ski techniques, you know, they really spread, you know, all around the world from Alta, you know, the, the approach of how do you ski deep powder, because it wasn't happening in other parts of the of the world. Hmm. Then you, uh, you have, a, I think, a couple chapters devoted to avalanches, avalanche safety. It's uh, interesting, of course, if, if an area is going to become developed like Utah did, uh, developers going to have to think about avalanche control. And, and it's very interesting. They, I don't know, still to this day, they use... Um, the howitzers, the uh, you know, the explosive, the the guns. Yeah, you know, Little Cottonwood Canyon is a pretty amazing place from an avalanche perspective. And you know, if you go back to the 1800s, you know, many many of the miners there were killed. Well over a hundred. The exact count is not really know, known, but due to these large avalanches that affected the area. And you know, in the 40s when they first started skiing there. You know, keep you know they would just close the road and they'd close the resort whenever the avalanche hazard was high. But even then, people wouldn't stand for that. They wanted to get up there and go skiing. So you know that's you know Alta also became kind of the birthplace, at least in the United States, for avalanche control capabilities. Uh, and Monty Atwater was the snow ranger who really uh, pioneered that initially, and then he was joined by Ed LaChapelle later on. And even today, it's it's a tremendous thing to keep that canyon open. It's a remarkable stretch of highway. Depending on how many how you count them, there's anywhere from 33 to 50 avalanche paths that intersect the road and the parking lots there. And for the public to go up there and go skiing, we've got to ensure that those areas are safe. And it's an incredible story. Yes, there are two howitzers there. They fire 105 millimeter shells. They do about 600 of those a year to to help uh, basically release smaller avalanches when the road is closed to stabilize the snowpack. And then there's all the other stuff that's happening at the resorts to help keep the resorts open and safe uh, for the public. You have a picture in the book of a, a UTA uh, transit bus that was hit by an avalanche. It's it's sort of, you know, tilting, and it's got a, uh, I don't know, I guess they had to dig that thing out. Um, but, it, you know, the roads, as you mentioned, are, have to be kept safe. Uh, and you have pictures of these of these guns. It's just uh, just incredible. I don't know where the first idea came, but I guess it's you you know after the World War you 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 would think what do we use these guns for? Well, we can we can maybe dislodge some avalanches doing this. Yeah, Monty Atwater was the 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 fellow who really pioneered that. He was a Tenth Mountain Division veteran, 
and uh, he was hired by Alta to to help them with uh, avalanche control. It was by the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, they were the ones that used to handle all the avalanche control in the canyon. And uh, Monty got the idea of, of using the howitzer to uh, to help to basically trigger slides. The idea with avalanche control work is you you trigger slides to re- to, to release the mass and and reduce the likelihood of an avalanche before it, they become you know threatening menaces on a huge scale. Um, and so he was the one who first started to uh, to, to use uh, weaponry of that type for avalanche control. Uh, are there other techniques? Uh, there's a picture in the book. Uh, I didn't quite understand it. There's a machine, seems like, on the top of the ridge, and it's, I don't know, trying to scoop scoop snow, start an avalanche no, that way? Yeah, that's that? a Gazek system, it's called. So there's a lot of other approaches that people have been taking um, to try to uh, to help with avalanche control. So in addition to these howitzers, they have these things that are called Gazek systems. They're big tubes that come up basically out of the snowpack, and then they, they have a curve in them. And there's a an explosion that they have, like a natural gas explosion that happens in the tube, and it goes through the tube down through this curve, and it gets directed down onto the snowpack. So there's a big concussive force that hits the snowpack that can trigger avalanches. Those are becoming kind of the way to do things in a lot of at a lot of ski resorts above a lot of highways. You just permanently install these things, and then you can um, detonate one of these charges and have it directed onto the snowpack to try to trigger avalanches. Mm-hmm. You can't do everything with Gazex in the in the in the canyon, basically, Little Cottonwood Canyon, we have a lot of wilderness areas where, at least right now, under current law, I don't believe you can install a structure of that type. So not the only way that, that, that we control avalanches in Little Cottonwood. So in, in resorts, um, uh, you know, areas where you go and, and uh, do regular skiing, they, they do everything they can to make sure that, uh, that people are safe. But people do like to uh, go off trail. Uh, we're going to take a break, come uh, back and talk about that. And uh, there is uh, an unfortunate fact that uh, Jim Steenberg points out. The slopes, the, the, the degrees of angle of slopes that are perfect for powder skiing are also perfect for avalanches. So what do you do? We'll talk about powder fever and how to stay safe following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis Gallery Deli at 52 Federal Avenue in Logan. Featuring seasonal, local, and organic foods, open for breakfast 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. and lunch 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Sunday brunch 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Menu information available at cafeibis.com. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. Clara Benson met her partner on an internet dating site, but instead of going for coffee, they got on a plane with no luggage and traveled to eight countries in 21 days. Next time on Q, I'll chat with her about the thrill of escape. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us Wednesday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have another... uh, about 15 minutes left in the program. You can join us by email to upraccess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio, also on Facebook. My guest, Jim Steenberg, is professor of atmospheric sciences at University of Utah. He loves snow, loves skiing it, loves studying it. And his latest book is Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth. It's out from Utah State University Press. Uh, and we are talking about avalanches before the break. I want to get into avalanche uh, safety. Um, you talk about, and this is a phrase I hadn't uh, been familiar with, but I, I imagine it's very familiar to uh, avid skiers. Uh, you talk about powder fever. 
Yeah, powder fever is just uh, kind of a mental state that, that makes it difficult to, to make good decisions sometimes when you're in the backcountry. Um, I think the whole avalanche community is, has, is starting to recognize now that decision-making in the backcountry is one of the biggest challenges to, to, to keeping yourself safe. And, and it's really hard when you have a lot of powder, when you can see powder and you want to ski, um, ski that special run maybe that you've worked really hard to get to to say, you know, the slopes uh, doesn't look so, so great today. I think we're going to have to pass on it. But um, really that's one of the biggest challenges is staying safe in the backcountry. And uh, so I, I think I think most would say you're generally safe, pretty safe in the developed areas. But yeah, you know the developed areas are not 100% safe. I mean, we we have had a couple of avalanche fatalities inbounds here in Utah, but the odds are extremely extremely low. Um, so you know, in generally inbounds, uh, the snowpack. You know, if you're skiing, if the terrain is open, you should be pretty comfortable that you're safe. I mean, I do ski at the resort sometimes with my uh, avalanche transceiver, um, just in case something unusual were to happen, and, and my partners could hopefully be able to extract me. But it's for the most part at the resorts, you're extremely safe. So for avalanche safety, um, ski and at least pairs have partners have the transceiver. Those would be the first two things. Well, you know, there's the usual equipment that people take, you know, ski touring, um, and that would be, for example, a beacon, shovel, and a probe. Those are kind of the three key pieces of equipment. The beacon is this thing that sends out a signal that allows your partner to find you if you were to say be buried. Typically, the probe is used to also, once they get close to you, the probe is used to identify where, where the victim is exactly, and then the, the shovel allows you to dig the person out. But the most important avalanche uh, equipment is really, uh, what's on your shoulders, which is your head, in the decision-making process. You know, the I wasn't going to write a, a book on avalanche uh, safety and backcountry avalanche travel. It, it, you know, that, that requires many chapters, and there's a lot of great books on that. So when I did Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth, I thought, I think I'm going to write a book on the decision-making process, powder fever, and in particular, some of the challenges you have making good decisions when you're leaving a ski resort, say, and you're going into the backcountry. Yeah, I guess your judgment can be clouded by the pleasure that you're anticipating. Yeah, there's a lot of unique aspects. You know, I'm a, as a backcountry skier, I usually am not at the resorts when I go backcountry skiing. Um, but when you are at the resorts, number one, you're skiing in an area that's already had avalanche control, and you're in a you know in a in a situation where the snowpack at the resort is substantially different than it is in the backcountry. Uh, and number one, so number one, that can set up a false sense of security, whether you even realize it or not. The other thing that happens at, at a, you know, a lot of the resorts is when you can see the backcountry, you know, you're skiing in bounds and maybe everything gets tracked out, and then, you know, you can see adjacent backcountry terrain where it's, it's untracked. It, it just is this incredible lure to try to uh, coerce you into going out and skiing fresh powder out there, and so sometimes judgment gets clouded by that. Um, and then there's a host of other factors, too, that can play a role that we talk about in the chapter called Beyond the Ropes. And uh, you recount some uh, unfortunate incidences. So, you know, and we, we unfortunately hear these uh, many seasons. There was yeah, one. you know, when you go back and you read the reports from most of these incidents, you know, in almost every case, the victim recognizes that there's a hazard. Um, you know, most avalanche fatalities don't happen on high or extreme hazard days, and they don't happen on low hazard days. They don't happen on high hazard days because people say, oh, it's so dangerous, I'm just not going to go. And they don't happen on low hazard days because it's really hard to trigger a, an avalanche. 
But when you're in the middle ground, considerable hazard, moderate hazard, that's that's when most of these accidents happen. And um, that considerable hazard doesn't mean no hazard. And um, so getting people to recognize hazard and, and make good decision is important. Yeah, there's one that especially struck me. It's from 2006. Uh, two snowboarders exited the Brighton ski area. Um, avalanche danger was moderate to considerable. They didn't have their avalanche rescue gear and hadn't checked the report. And uh, the, the, a large cornice broke underneath one of the snowboarders, carried down the slope. And, and the um, the ski patrol was, was to him within 20 minutes, which seemed to me pretty good. But, of course, 20 minutes, if you're buried, that's, well, that's you know, that's not going to be good enough. And, and sure enough, he died. Um, so uh, I guess uh, that is logical now that you've said it. Uh, if it's really high avalanche danger, then uh, people say, okay, you know, we're not going to go. Uh, it's those those moderate uh, days, I guess, where, where you have to use more judgment, and sometimes people choose the wrong thing. Yeah, you know, you have to make those decisions, and nobody's perfect. People who are avalanche professionals and have 20 years of experience have been killed by avalanches. So, you know, we're all... We're all vulnerable to, you know, we always have to make decisions without all the facts. Avalanche uh, are, are just like that. You know, you just never have all the evidence you could possibly have. And so the decision on whether to go or no go, the key is to don't let your enthusiasm cloud your, your thinking is mm-hmm. one, of, one of the approaches. And there's other um, heuristic traps, if you want to call them that. Large groups, for example, sometimes in large groups, large groups tend to kind of succumb to safety in numbers because there's a lot of people. You sometimes have a certain level, you subliminally have this idea that, hey, maybe it's safer um, or that there's a lot more people to, to kind of rescue me if something were to happen. But um, those are some of the traps that we talk about in this particular chapter. I want to get into um, your, your section where you uh, talk about how people can do their own weather forecast. Uh, and I, you know, your your own weather prediction. What? I, and I guess some people do this. How do you go about doing that? Yeah. Well, you know, everything that I look at to forecast the weather is accessible now on the internet. I mean, that's one of the most amazing things of having the internet out there. Is weather forecasting back in the day when I was started in college in the late '80s. You know, nobody could access that kind of stuff, and now everybody can. And so. Uh, there's certainly a lot of ability for people. I know a number of people that don't have meteorology degrees, but they're they're very weather savvy and they do their own weather forecasts. And uh, maybe they're backcountry skiers and they have a pretty good idea of when one particular part of the Wasatch gets snow and another you know another part doesn't. And they they adjust their their skiing and riding uh, for plans based on that. And so we talk. We have a chapter that really kind of goes over some of the products that are out there and some of the basics of how to forecast the weather. Uh, so you say, uh, uh, I have access to everything you have access to. That's correct. I mean, all the computer models that I use to forecast the weather, you can look at output from them online. Um, you can just get online and take a look at those. You can look at, you know, radar images. Uh, you know, everything that's out there, it's all out there basically on the web, and, and you can access all of that and do your own weather forecast. Of course, I wouldn't, uh, I guess I wouldn't have the knowledge, right? I wouldn't. Uh, there's some context. You have to put it all together. Yeah, you know, the Chapter 8 isn't going to turn you into a, um, you know, a, a full-blown professional weather forecaster in 20 pages, but it basically tries to lay out, hey, look, these are the things that to look at. Here's some basics on how to interpret them. Try to get you started. Uh, good weather forecasters, you know, the real key is that, they're, that they spend a lot of time looking at the weather, and they spend a lot of time thinking about what happens in whatever, whatever area that they like to, uh, to ski and if and so the idea with in chapter eight, uh, which is called Potter Prediction, is basically to give people just basically the foundation for being able to do that as they move forward. Uh, 
It's my impression, and maybe this is just I've been exposed to many uh, you know commercials on television uh, touting their meteorology department. Uh, it's my impression that we've gotten more accurate with weather forecasting over time. Yeah, you know, weather forecasting in the last 20 years has advanced at an incredible pace. And uh, I still, I have to laugh now and then. I guess Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots was complaining about how bad the forecasts were uh, for the football game last week. But the reality is now, at least in a lot of, for a lot of really high-impact weather events, that we have a pretty good idea they're coming a couple days in advance, even if, even if we can't nail down all the details. Um, hurricanes, for example, now, there's no big surprise hurricanes. Um, you know, we have a, generally have a pretty good idea a few days in, in advance. You know, there may be some oddball one every now and then that maybe comes in stronger than expected or makes a, a track change. It's not perfectly forecast, but, you know, we don't get surprised by those very much. You might have heard about this uh, big cyclone in Alaska last week which was a redevelopment of former super typhoon Nuri as it went up into Alaska. You know, we knew about that five or six days in advance. And if you look at the ship tracks in that area, this was a storm that would have sunk multiple ships 20 or 30 years ago. All the ships avoided that area because they knew four or five days in advance it was coming. So weather forecasting has really come a long ways in the last 20 years. And with those advances, I think perhaps rising expectations from from people. Yeah, rising expectations. And then the, the thing I always tell people is, is uh, even though weather forecasts have got a lot better, when you look at the United States as a whole, the Intermountain West has the lowest skill <laughs> of anywhere in the United States. In other words, our forecasts the, are, are not as good here as they are in other parts of the country. And so um, we still struggle a little bit around here. And part of the reason is our weather systems are all chewed up by the upstream topography, the Sierra Nevada, the Cascades. They're small in scale. Lake effect is really hard to forecast. So even though the forecasts are better here than they were 20 years ago, they're not as good as, as other parts of the country. So if you're a forecaster you'd, uh, and you want a real challenge, come come to the West. Come to Utah. This is a tough place yeah. to forecast for, yes. Yeah, interesting. Um, I wonder, uh, having done the, the book, um, studied some of the history, uh, outlined some of the science, were there, were there some surprises for you? Well, you know, I think one of the... The more interesting parts of the book was when I looked into Beyond Utah, and I was looking at snow climates all around the world. And, um, you know, the, one of the surprises is it's really hard to find good snow in the southern hemisphere. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it, it, there are places in New Zealand and in the Andes where it does snow a lot, uh, but it also tends to be quite maritime and wet, meaning it's a lot, a lot of heavy snow. Um, so accessible areas of the southern hemisphere where you can find really good snow are, is, uh, is tough. And, you know, there are places like Portillo in Chile and Valle Nevada and stuff like that that get uh, some snow, but they don't get amounts like we get here in Utah. So I guess, I guess one of the surprises is, you know, really Utah, interior British Columbia, you know, parts of Alaska and Japan, those are, those are really the snow, ultimate snow climates in the world. Uh, and uh, I guess some of those places haven't been really developed because they're very hard to do so. Yeah, I mean, the southern hemisphere, you know, New Zealand's got some pretty, you know, quite a bit few ski areas, but they're all on the on the eastern side of the New Zealand Alps. They actually don't, and they're at low elevation, so they don't get, they're not the best places to ski. Uh, some of these ski fields they have in New Zealand, though, are have some pretty interesting terrain, and they can get some good snow as well, places like Temple Basin. They have some really wild kind of ski fields in, in New Zealand. It's not like the United States... Uh, 
They have these smaller resorts. They just have uh, rope toes, maybe, or, or T-bars. And then you have to, you know, some of them, like Temple Basin, you have to walk 45 minutes just to get to. So, you know, you have to work there to, to find uh, decent snow. Just have a couple minutes left. I'd like to end with with just the joy of, of of powder. Some, you know, you have this phenomenon with ski bums. They uh, that that's their life, um, and others, um, you know, you plan your work around uh, skiing. We're all familiar with this, especially here in Utah. Uh, and uh, you talk in the book about I hadn't been familiar with this 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 phenomenon called interlodge. Yeah, interlodge is something that happens at Alta when the uh, avalanche danger is high and they need to. Um do avalanche control work uh, around the village of, or the town of Alta and the village of Snowbird. Uh, in Interlodge, uh, basically, you have to uh, remain indoors while they're doing this avalanche control work. You're not allowed to go outside. Um, and in some situations, if the avalanche hazard is extremely high, you may have to move to fortified rooms or fortified buildings while they're doing the avalanche control work. Then, so it doesn't matter. That's kind of like being stuck in purgatory, I guess. You yeah. know, if you know it's snowing outside and you're going to get a great deep powder day, and then you're basically sequestered and you can't go outside. But that's something that's happened uh, that happens in Upper Little Cottonwood Canyon. But I guess the the good the good thing is once it stops snowing and uh, the, and you get out and can can ski, you're the only ones there. Yeah, if they can get the the mountain open. Uh, which sometimes they can, then then uh, that can be a great thing. And, you know, sometimes the canyon's closed to traffic going up or down it, and so you might be up in Upper Little Cottonwood Canyon having sometimes what they call a country club day where you've got the whole mountain to yourselves and nobody from the Salt Lake Valley can get up there. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that for some people that would be heaven. Yeah, that probably is heaven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about you? You're looking forward to uh, having enough powder to, to get out there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the ski season. So uh, there's nothing like uh, getting some fresh snow going. And November, a dry November is kind of a hard thing for all skiers, I think. And uh, everybody's been suffering, I think, the last few weeks. And so it'll be nice when we start to see uh, some snow starting to fly. Well, if you'd like to learn all about the greatest snow on earth, here's the book. Uh, Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth is the book. Jim Steenberg is the author. Uh, it's out from Utah State University Press. Jim Steenberg is a professor of atmospheric sciences at University of Utah. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. It's great to uh, to be on today. I should mention Wasatch Weather Weenies again, wasatchweatherweenies.blogspot.com, popular blog authored by, uh, by Jim Steenberg. Thanks for listening today. Persona is a documentary premiering at the Slam Dance Film Festival in Park City on January 22nd. It's a first-time effort for director Dominic Rodriguez that focuses on the world of furries, people who dress up like animals. I think that part of what was the kind of journey of the movie was the struggle in making a good, solid definition because there are so many people in it. I had called myself a furry, but I never really understood it. Until I was about 17 years old, I uh, went to work as a mascot for a, a single-A baseball team, surprisingly, as a raccoon. And the first time I got in that suit and that mascot was just completely surreal. I mean, so I could be as energetic, as happy, as crazy as I could be, and people loved it. Since it kind of means something different to each person that's in that community, it's hard to say something that's all-inclusive. Rodriguez, who is a furry himself, said he wanted to shed some light on the furry community. However, because of the negative media coverage in past years, it's difficult to do. There's a lot of 
fear in the furry community about it being misrepresented. You can see furries all around at amusement parks, mascots at football games, and sometimes even on Main Street promoting a company or event. For some furries, it's a profession, while for others, it's a lifestyle. So many of us are into uh, creating art and street performance, basically, with our fursuits. A lot of furry conventions have dance competitions because there's a big dancer community in the furry fandom. Everyone supports everyone, and, like, it's just a big family. Throughout the documentary, the audience is exposed to conflicts within the community, everything from how to be a furry to politics within their society. Uncle Kage is a researcher by profession and is also a chairman of Anthrocon, a furry convention. He wears a lab coat at his speaking engagements opposed to his furry costume. I've got a professional reputation that I have to maintain. Another persona is Boomer. He's the antithesis of Uncle Kage, who made his own costume out of clothes and shredded paper. He sweeps parts of his hair on top of his head, making puppy ears. I I love furry so much. I want to see all kinds of people have it and enjoy it if they'd like to. And I'd like them to see all the sides of furry, you know, good and bad, whatever it is. I don't think there's much bad to it. It's, you know, people trying to discover themselves in different ways. I didn't want to just turn it into, like, this tight, neat little story. I wanted to get to know the people. So we spent years, like, when I first met Boomer, I was shocked by his lifestyle. But then the more I got to know him, the more insight he shared with me. And I sort of realized what a good handle on all of this he has. Rodriguez realized throughout the making of the documentary that something complex can still be positive. It doesn't necessarily need to be like a PR piece to still have an overall positive effect. And I think if furries are portrayed as humans, you know, as like flawed humans even, sometimes that isn't necessarily a negative thing. And when all is said and done, as Rodriguez says, he hopes people walk away with a better understanding of who they are. It seems so strange at first, and I hope by the end of it, it's not about furry anymore for the audience, and they just have gotten to know these people. But they see them as people, and I think that that is so important to me. To learn more about the documentary or the Slam Dance Film Festival, go to upr.org. With Utah Public Radio News, I'm Melissa Allison. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio.